So, I have been thinking a lot. You all want to have a seat? You don't have to. You can stand there. Because actually, you know what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk a little bit about posture and the ways that we use our body. So, oh, can I, can I, get, can I get everybody to look at me? All right, are you ready? We're going to try something here. A lot of times in the church, we don't just use our minds or our eyes or our mouths to praise God, but we even use our bodies. Now, some of you got a Bible a little while ago. Can you do this with me? Everybody do this. This might be one position that you use to learn about God because you might hold your Bible and you read about God, right? Yeah. So another thing we might do in the church, though, is we might do this. Can everybody do this for me? Everybody do this. Sometimes we put our hands up and we praise God and we open ourselves up to allow God to be there with us. Do you know that the earliest Christians did this? They used their hands like this. It was called the Orans, but we can just call it praise hands. How about that? Can you do this with me? We'll do a little jazz hands too. How about that? All right, good. And then I've got one more. I think another thing Christians can do with their bodies to, to help people know that they love God and that they love their neighbor is to take care of their neighbors and let their neighbors know that they love them. So right now I want you to do this. I want you to look at each other and go like this. Can you give everybody a thumbs up? Yeah, everybody here is a real cool dude, right? Or a cool doodad or a cool person, right? Yes. Awesome. Great. There are so many ways we can use our bodies to say... I love God and I love my friends and my neighbors. So now I want you to help me pray. Can everybody do this again? We're going to pray together. Are you ready? All right, let's pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks that you are with us today. I ask that your spirit be on each and every one of these children gathered here. And we give you thanks for their energy and their joy We love them and we love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, can everybody stand up? And if you're three to five years old, you can head that direction with Pastor Maggie and you can go to our children's chapel. And everybody else can return to your seats with your parents, okay? It was good to see you this morning. You're three? Then if you're three or four, you can go right that direction, okay? Great. What a joy to have such energy and spirit in this place this morning. I thought it might feel a little dull being the fall break week and having all these kids here has just brightened my day and reminded me what a joy it is to be here in this space. You know, posture is important. A simple Google search on the topic of posture will bring up an array of articles referencing the physical and even mental benefits of maintaining good posture. And it's more than simply just trying to stand up straight. Maintaining good posture helps reduce various types of pain. It strengthens our core muscles. It protects our joints. It makes our breathing more effective and can even improve our self confidence. Simply put, posture matters. Furthermore, the way we posture ourselves 
or position ourselves, maybe is another way to say it, that says something to the world around us and to those whom we encounter. This might include our physical posture, but posturing goes beyond the body. And it also has something to do with our inner motivations. Our attitudes and demeanors are the postures of our souls. They're the positions of our personality that determine who we are in the world. So posturing matters. Now, as I imagine this scene we heard read a few minutes ago, I see lots of posturing. And I picture James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as two guys who have really good posture. I can't imagine that they are slouches by any definition imaginable, physically or attitudinally. You see, these are the two apostles that Jesus actually chose to give a nickname to. You might remember that according to Mark chapter 3, when Jesus chooses these two apostles, he gives them the name the Sons of Thunder. Now, to me, that sort of sounds like a WWE wrestling team or maybe a rock band or even a biker gang. (laughs) Introducing the Sons of Thunder. There's really no explanation, though, as to why Jesus gives them this name. But I can't imagine that he called them the sons of thunder because they were withdrawn or quiet or slow to action. No, I suspect that James and John stood strong and tall and were forthright and projected confidence wherever they went. So perhaps it should come as no surprise that even though Jesus has already explained to all of his followers that there is currently no greatest among them, that James and John should come forward to request positions of honor at some time in the future when Jesus is glorified. And I really can't imagine that Jesus was particularly caught off guard by their bold request. Now, it's easy for us to roll our eyes at what we imagine to be their hubris. It's easy to get indignant like the other apostles and wonder, how can these guys be so cocky? But if we're honest... James and John are probably best understood as self-confident go-getters. By many of our normal standards of trying to get ahead in the world to make something of ourselves, James and John are posturing in all the right ways. If Jesus and his followers are on the right path, and if their message and ministry are truly liberating, and if they are the righteous ones... Why not stand up tall, fight for the good, and take their rightful place among the gloriously righteous? If they had had Instagram back then, I imagine these two guys smiling proudly in a selfie with Jesus, followed by hashtag doing good, hashtag sons of thunder, hashtag winning. Now, frankly, I don't think these guys are so off base, though. At least not in the sense that they understand the way that the world usually works. In fact, I suspect if I had been there, I would have admired these guys and probably looked up to them. I suspect the other apostles did too, and maybe they were even a bit jealous. And yet, for all of the adept posturing of James and John, Jesus has something new to teach them. Jesus wants them to know that there is more than one way to be a winner 
and that there are perhaps better postures to take for those who hope to be advocates for goodness and liberation in the world. For all of their giftedness, James and John can only hope to be world changers in the way of Jesus if they begin to posture like him. So I think it's important to notice here that Jesus does not rebuke James and John when they request to be seated with Jesus in glory. It's not like when Peter was rebuked by Jesus because he couldn't even accept the path that Jesus was on. No, James and John seem to have grasped much of the truth that Jesus has been speaking to them. I think they've come to understand what Jesus has taught them about seeking a reversal of fortune for those on the underside of privilege or of power or of health and wealth. They've caught a glimpse of what Jesus is up to as he bears witness to the healing and freeing power of the kingdom of God. And here in these final moments, before they enter into Jerusalem, I think they understand that this mission is about to kick into high gear. But what they still fail to understand is how Jesus plans to go about his work. They still imagine some sort of glorious triumph for the underdogs, and they imagine that Jesus and his followers will ultimately take the place and the power of those unjust rulers that came before, and then all will be well. But Jesus knows there's a different way. One made possible by a posture towards power that runs counter to their expectations. So as I think about Jesus trying to teach these men an alternative posture, strangely enough, I am reminded of my days in college as a music major studying voice. Because singing requires a unique coordination of muscles and breathing, assuming a good posture is crucial for singing. I remember hours spent with my voice teacher examining the ways that I was standing how I was allowing space for my diaphragm to fill with air when I was too tense in the shoulders and on and on. And sometimes to achieve optimum posture, I had to do things that were counterintuitive. For instance, did you know that one of the easiest ways to discover what a good deep breath feels like is to lean all the way over with your hands around your waist and breathe in? If you've never tried that before, I encourage you to go home and try it. It's a good way to get a good deep breath. There is no way to breathe improperly in that position. But of course, you don't want to sing with your head bent down between your knees all the time. So then you begin to lift your body up and find the proper position where you can still maintain that good deep breathing while remaining upright. So paradoxically, you can lean over to discover how to stand with better singing posture. There are countless other examples of these counterintuitive ways of discovering better singing posture, where you first break posture altogether, you analyze what happens, and then apply it to new ways of standing or even sitting. In his response to the request of James and John, I think Jesus acts a little bit like my voice instructor. As Jesus suggests counterintuitive practices that will actually serve James and John and the others better in the long run in their quest to be followers of the ways 
of God. So Jesus begins by addressing James and John directly, and he hints at this different posture of discipleship. First, he asks them if they can drink from the same cup and receive the same baptism as he. Now, of course, in their self-confident manner, James and John say, sure we can. But what may be clear to us in retrospect is not at all clear to them. This proverbial cup hints at the fate of Jesus. It will be the cup that not too long from now, Jesus will be lifting up and saying, this is my blood. It will not be too long from now until Jesus will be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that if it be God's will to let this cup pass from him. The cup they will all drink from is one of shared sacrifice and perhaps even death. And the baptism of Jesus in which they share is not simply a repentance from individual sin, but it's rather a sign that marks their mission to bring healing and liberation to the world, no matter the consequences. One does not always take this cup and baptism standing tall, but sometimes it requires a posture of stooping low. Jesus promises James and John that they will indeed share in his cup and his baptism, but they probably can't comprehend yet what that means for them. And then Jesus hints at another aspect of a disciple's posture. Radical humility before the will of God. Jesus tells James and John that he cannot even guarantee a place of glory for them. Rather, their place in the story of God's unfolding work of salvation is ultimately not his to determine. Rather, Jesus suggests that if these sons of thunder dare to follow the way of Jesus, that their journey and their fate will be their own. It will be between them and God, and yet it will be part of the same work. Here, Jesus suggests a spiritual posture of openness and receptivity to the surprising and unpredictable ways of God. And then finally, Jesus gets to the heart of his teaching as he gathers the other apostles around. You see, he anticipates that he may not be with them much longer. Soon they will be the ones living by the Spirit and working in the name of God. They will be the ones to continue spreading the liberating news of God's kingdom. And they will be the ones who have the potential to use or to abuse their power in the name of God. So I think it's significant that this is Jesus' last major teaching before they enter Jerusalem. He tells his apostles that instead of wielding power like the Gentile rulers with which they are familiar, they will now instead unleash the liberating power of God by laying down their own presumption to power. Their posture will not be one of an upright king or even a council that rules justly, but as a servant or even as a slave. God will reign only if they choose not to. 
Those who need to be liberated from unjust rulers and systems of power will only find freedom if the disciples of God take on the posture of Jesus, who himself spends much of his time bowed in prayer, kneeling in service to others, and forsaking control over others, even those who would do him harm. But the disciples were probably asking the same question that we still have today. Why is this the posture Jesus calls for from his apostles and from those who seek to follow him? Sometimes when we try to understand this strange posturing of Jesus, I think we get tripped up on the last bit where Jesus says this has something to do with paying a ransom for many. Because of 2,000 plus years of Christian tradition, we hear this explanation through our religious ears as having to do only with Jesus dying to save us from our individual sins. And while I do not deny that being saved from our own transgressions is an important part of the story of God's work in our lives, I'm afraid here it distracts us from a much simpler understanding of what Jesus means to teach his apostles here in this important moment. You see, this word that's translated as ransom literally means manumission or money that is paid to free somebody from slavery or forced servitude. Listen clearly and simply and you'll realize how radical and dangerous this teaching could be and why it got Jesus and his followers in lots of trouble. Put simply, each time someone who can wield power chooses to lay it down and take on the role of servant, someone else who has previously been forced to be a servant or slave is then freed for something else. When one who has already granted dignity in this world aligns themselves with the posture of one who has not granted the same respect, a space is created for that other person to realize their own worth as well. That is the very real and very tangible kingdom of God on earth. This is an intentional and true and fruitful posture of humility. But lest we misunderstand Jesus, like the apostles so often do throughout the book of Mark, pay close attention to how humility works here. This is expressly a teaching for the apostles and for any like them who may be in a position of power or authority or even of rightness. For people such as these, humility means bringing one's posture low like that of a servant. But we make a mistake if we think that this call to stooping low is a universal posture for all persons at all times. For what good could come from stooping low for someone who is already stripped of dignity or respect. Rather, a different sort of humility is experienced by those who have been on the underside of privilege and power and health and wealth. Those who have been unjustly forced to stoop low are now humbled to discover that they can rise. They can stand up, they can seek the good, for themselves and for others. They can now claim the dignity that was previously denied them. As God's followers divert power 
from the overseers by taking on the posture of servants. Those who were subservient now rise to assume their own good and dignified posture. This is the beginning of true salvation for all of the world. So perhaps the question Jesus invites us to ponder today is, how good is your posture? If you are someone who has a certain amount of power or privilege or wealth or health, maybe Jesus is inviting you to practice new postures of service and sacrifice so that your fellow siblings might catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God. If you're someone who's been weighed down by life, pushed down by others, or experienced hardships around health and happiness, maybe Jesus is inviting you to claim your worthiness as a child of God. And if you are someone who is a little bit of both of these, a little bit powerful, but also a little bit downtrodden by life, which, hint, hint, is every single one of us. Perhaps Jesus is inviting you to help create places and spaces where people can work on their posture together. And at our best together, this body of Christ here at West End United Methodist Church can be just such a place where everyone can discover God-centered postures for living and loving. I pray that we would be known for our good posture.